Thank you for joining us for another life-giving message from City Church Now in Progress. So we're going to dive into the Word together, and uh, I've chosen this morning as our anchor text a somewhat obscure passage of Scripture. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with it, uh, but man, it's one of those Scriptures that has given even commentators and and theologians uh, great pause. Uh, Because it's peculiar and it is very unique, there is no other example in all of Scripture where Jesus has this interaction with someone who needed a touch from him. If you're following along in your Bibles, turn with me to to our anchor text, which is lifted from Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse number 22. If you're there, say amen. amen. If you're not there yet, say oh me. All right. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible and you don't have a Bible on your phone, you can follow along on the screens. We also have our notes available in version. If you have the, the version Bible app, you can download our notes there. Amen. Here we go. Beginning at verse number 22 of chapter 8 of the gospel according to Mark. Scripture declares, then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then Jesus put his hands on his eyes again, a second time. Somebody say the second touch. Uh, Thank you, Lord. And made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then Jesus sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Father, we draw near to your word now with humility and reverence. Holy Spirit, you are the teacher. Take these lips of clay and anoint them that I might speak a word in season to every heart that is weary. Father, I pray that as you give me stewardship over these few moments I have with your people, it will not be in vain, that no one will leave as they came in Jesus' name. And Father, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice that they would sense and appreciate the weight, the significance of this moment as we look to your word and as you reveal to us what you desire to do in our lives now and what you desire to do next. Father, thank you. Make this a defining moment. Make this a defining moment where there are paradigm shifts in the lives of your people for the better. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen and amen. As I mentioned earlier, this is a peculiar passage because none of the other gospel writers record this interaction, this transaction with Jesus and the blind man. The second reason this is peculiar is because there's no other evidence in the scriptures where Jesus ever had to pray for the same person twice. And this has boggled the minds of Bible commentators and theologians for centuries. Why the second touch? 
Why didn't Jesus just settle the issue once and for all with the first touch? Why did it take a second touch for this blind man to finally see clearly? And I would venture to say that many in the room are somewhere between that first and second touch. You see something, but you're not sure what it is. You've experienced his first touch where he removed the blindness, where he removed the darkness, where he opened your eyes, yet there is something deficient about what you see. Something remedial about what you see. And I, I believe the Lord sent me this morning to speak to those who find themselves in that place where you know that God has spoken to you, you know that God has touched you. You know that God has given you a vision from above, yet all you see is uncertainty, shadows, men walking around as trees. You know you're on the right course, but something's missing. And I believe what the Lord wants us to re-examine it's not whether or not we have a vision for our lives, but he wants us to re-examine our focus. Let's dive into the text. The scripture says that Jesus is now in a city, a town called Bethsaida. He comes to Bethsaida and he is met by a group of men, well-meaning, who bring their friend who is infirmed. He is blind. Can I just pump the brakes right there? Make sure as you transition from 2019 to 2019 that you surround yourself with people who are genuinely concerned about your plight. I know we got all kinds of friends. We got friends we go to brunch with and we got friends we go to lunch with. We got friends we go to dinner with, and we got friends we turn up with. But if we're going to experience all that God has planned and purposed for our lives, it's critically important that the friends you prioritize in your life are the friends who will bring you to Jesus. I know it ain't cute. I know it's not the kind of pictures that we post on social media of the friends who bring me to Jesus. I'm not going to post pictures of me and my friends in Bible study and in an intercessory prayer meeting and encouraging each other. The pictures I'm going to post are pictures of me traveling the world, pictures of me dancing, partying, and at dinner. But let me tell you this, 2020 ought to be a different year for you where you have greater priorities and you have more important priorities such as the people you surround yourself with and whether or not in your blindness they will even know to bring you to Jesus. Most of us want the will of God but we won't even position ourselves to receive it. And what I'm saying right now is going to fly over so many heads. And we still want God's will, 
but we won't even prioritize the most important things. The people who surround us and the people who influence us and the people who inform our decisions. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, do not be misled. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that, oh man, it's no big deal. He said bad company corrupts good character. And the reason we're reading this story is because there was a blind man who had friends, who had purpose and presence of mind that realized the only person that can help our friend is Jesus. I'm talking about the intentional decisions that will make your 2020 and beyond different than what you have experienced up until now. Are y'all listening to me? If you'll be more selective, you'll be more effective. Let me tell you something. Who and what you are willing to walk away from always determines what God will bring you into next. That's why he says to Abraham, leave your father's house. Everything that is familiar and convenient and comfortable and go to a place I will show you. And in that place, blessing I will bless you. And multiplying I will multiply you. And I will make your name great. And I will make you the father of many nations. And, 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 and it couldn't happen until Abraham was willing to walk away from some things. Because what you're willing to walk away from always determines what God will bring you into next. So who are your running mates? Who are you doing life with? And how are they influencing you? Are they moving you forward closer to God's plan and purpose for your life? Or are they pulling you further away from it? Because these men brought their friend to Jesus. How many honest conversations are you having with the people in your circle where they're bringing you back to what Jesus said? 2020 is going to be no different if you continue with the same circle that has only gotten you this far. Let me leave that alone. So, so, so these friends uh, bring their friend to Jesus. Notice Jesus is, is in Bethsaida. But the first thing that Jesus does after they bring the blind man to him is, is this, verse 23. It says, so he took the blind man, I love it, by the hand, and he led him. out of town. Let me tell you something. <laughs> the environments you entertain going forward will determine how much he does in your life. And there is a reason that Jesus brings the man out of Bethsaida, tells his friends, y'all wait here because what I've got to do with your friend is between the two of us. This is not by committee. 
It's going to happen one-on-one. And the reason he moves this blind man out of Bethsaida is because Jesus had history in that town. In fact, in, in, in Matthew chapter 11, this is what he says about Bethsaida. He says, woe to you, Chorazim, and woe to you, Bethsaida, because of the signs and wonders that had been done in your city had been done in Tyre and Sidon. All of them would have repented. You saw the miracles of God, and you weren't even moved. And so Jesus finds himself with Bethsaida once again. And these men, well-meaning, want Jesus to do a miracle. Jesus, just in case you were wondering, it's okay to be petty sometimes. Jesus got a little petty. And said, what I'm about to do next, these people are not worthy of. I'm talking about the, 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 the environments that you entertain. There are some things that Jesus just ain't going to do around people who ain't going to appreciate what he's trying to do after he's done all the miracles, after he's done all the signs, and they remain unchanged. And Jesus says, I care about you. And in order for me to do what I want to do in your life, I'm going to take you away from your friends, as well-meaning as they are, and I'm going to get you out of this city. I'm going to get you out of this environment. I'm going to get you out of this atmosphere because our God often does his best work in isolation. So don't be surprised if you're 2020 looks a little bit lonelier than it used to be. Because what he desires to do, he cannot do in Bethsaida. Because he will not cast his pearls before swine. Are y'all listening to me? So, um, uh, so, so he takes him out uh, of Bethsaida and he leads him by the hand out of town. Notice, isolation is a divine incubator where your calling, your character, your competence, and your conditioning will be tested and developed. I'll say that again. Isolation is a divine incubator where your character, your calling, your competence, and your conditioning will be tested. Let me back the train up for a second. Anybody remember this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11? It's a favorite verse for most people. In fact, the first time I read Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, I know the date was October 6th of 1990. The reason I remember the date it's because that's my younger brother's birthday. And in October, on October 6th of 1990, I was curled up in the fetal position under a dining room table in Liberia, West Africa at the Guthrie Rubber Plantation in hiding from rebels who surrounded the bungalow where my brother and I were hiding. That morning I woke up and I was crying uncontrollably because that morning I thought 
I would never see my brother or my parents ever again. It was just a dark cloud, a darkness that came upon me when I woke up that morning and realized it was my baby brother's birthday and he was across the border in neighboring Sierra Leone and they weren't allowing males to cross the border into Sierra Leone. And I was curled up in the fetal position crying for hours. In fact, at the time, people were displaced from all over the country. And this generous, kind-hearted man who was from my mom's hometown, I went to school with one of his sons, opened up his home. And at the height of the Liberian Civil War, check this out, no running water and no electricity. And there were 33 of us packed in a three-bedroom house. My brother and I couldn't leave the house because all the other houses were surrounded by rebels from my hometown who were looking for people who, such as my family who had political affiliations. For three months, or maybe longer, my brother and I stayed in that house, and the only time we came outside of the house was at night. The people in the house had to go fetch water for us to even bathe at night for fear that we might encounter one of these freedom fighters, many of them child soldiers. And that morning on October 6th of 1990, I was curled up in the fetal position, bawling my eyes out because I had this overwhelming sense that I would never see my brother and my parents again. And while I was crying, I just saw this hand, man, just slide a piece of paper. You know how when you got that ugly cry going, you really literally see men as trees? I saw what I thought was a hand slide in a piece of paper between the chair legs to where I was curled up in the fetal position. And when I finally regained my composure, I reached out for this piece of paper. I thought it was a tissue or Kleenex, but it was a gospel tract. And this gospel tract was the story of a U.S. Air Force pilot who had been shot down during Vietnam and was a prisoner of war for seven years. And for the seven years that he was a POW in Vietnam, the one thing that sustained him was a verse of scripture that he memorized in children's church. Shout out to all our children's workers. God bless you. I see some of them here, Ashley. I see Kia and Carla. And there's more of you in here. You're making an eternal difference in the lives of those children. And when I opened the, 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 the tract and I started to read, it was this story of this U.S. Air Force, pilot who, Air Force pilot who had been shot down in Vietnam. And the one thing that sustained him was a verse of scripture that he memorized in children's church. And for the first time, I read these words from Jeremiah 29, 11. Notice what the scripture says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Can I just stop right there and say to every single person in this room under the sound of my voice right now that God has a plan for you. God already has a plan for you, and it's so much better than yours. 
And the good news this morning, City Church, is that God's plan for you is only for good. To prosper you and not to harm you. Can we just level set the expectations that no matter what happens next in 2020 and beyond, that God already has a plan? And there's absolutely nothing about your life that will ever blindside him, that will ever surprise him, that every step you take, God already knows. Notice what, how it reads in the message paraphrase. It says, listen, this is God's word on the subject. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Listen to me, that's God's, God talking about your life. That's God talking about my life. That he knows what he's doing. And he has it all planned out. Plans to take care of you. Not to abandon you. And plans to give you the future that you hope for. When I was preparing for this message, I realized that 29 years ago, when I was curled up in the fetal position crying and I read this verse, God had already seen City Church. He had already seen the shops at Legacy. He had already seen Legacy Town Center, places I had never seen or heard of, but it was part of his plan for my life. And you can fast forward 29 years from now, and there are places that God will take you, there are people that you will meet that you have not even seen or heard of, but it's all a part of the plan that he already has for you. God's plan for your life is so much better than your plan for yourself. Let me just tell you about your plan. Let me just tell you about your plan and my plan, what that looks like apart from God. The futility of making plans apart from God who said, I already got a plan for you. When I created you and I formed you and I fashioned you, I already know why I wired you the way I wired you, why I created you the way I created you. And you want to exchange my plan for yours? So he says, let me tell you a little bit about your plan. Let me just say a little bit about the futility of your plans apart from me. Listen to what he says. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. I'm going to get back to the blind man in a second. Are y'all with me? The only thing that's going to make what God does next in my life different than what I've experienced up until now is if I'm willing to change. And the first thing that must change is our focus. The first touch is about sight. The second touch is about focus. Notice what he says in James chapter 4, verse 13. He says, look here, you who say. <laughs> He's about to talk about our plans. Apart from him. He says, look, look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town. And we'll stay there for a year. We're going to do business there and we're going to make a profit. 
because my plan for my life is foolproof. I got it all figured out. We, we, we're going to do this. We're going to do it for a year. We're going to start a business, and we're going to make a profit. How do you even know what your life will be like tomorrow? I'm talking about those of us who are farsighted, who make our big plans without even including God. God said, I need to adjust you and get your vision back to 2020. How do you even know? You make your plans and you haven't even acknowledged me. And that's why Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. I know you're cute. I know you're smart. I know you got that Ivy League education, but don't trust it. Lean not to your own understanding, but this is what you do in all of your ways. In all of your ways. This is what he said. Acknowledge me. Invite me into the process. Make me a part of the process. And what will I do? I will direct your paths. God already has a plan, and his plan for me is so much better than mine. Notice what he says. Verse 14, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? He says your life is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to see is if the Lord wants us to. We will live and we will do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. And the Lord said, if 2020 is going to be different, your plans... My plans must align with his purpose, what he already planned and what he already determined in advance, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Are y'all with me? I don't want to change God's plan that is for my good to give me a hope in the future for something that I come up with myself. Are y'all with me? So the first thing he says, the first thing he says is I already have a plan for you. What you need to do is bring your life into alignment with my plan that I already have for you. So here it is. I'm going to go fast and furious. So in order to bring us into alignment with his plan, he has to bring our vision into focus. And how many of you realize that LASIK surgery is an individual, personal procedure? One eyeball at a time. Can't bring nobody with you. It's you and the surgeon alone. Making the cuts and the adjustments that you need to make in order to see 2020. Because God does his best work in isolation. Why isolation? Because first of all, he has to shape us into the size of the dream. And the first thing that he has to deal with, are y'all with me? 
I want you to hear this. The first thing that he has to bring into the focus is your individual calling. That is something that is lost on this generation. Can I tell you another word for your individual calling? It's something called uniqueness. You were born a designer original. Don't settle for dying a copy, baby. If all you're trying to do is be like somebody else, the best you can ever be is second. And God said, when I created you, I gave you a fingerprint that nobody else has so you can leave an imprint that nobody else can leave. And in isolation is the place where he reveals your uniqueness to you. Where he causes you to embrace every curve, every wrinkle, every inch, every quirk in your personality because he made you. And until you can settle the uniqueness question, you will struggle you will wrestle with bringing your life into alignment with God's purpose because we got way too many copycats measuring our lives by what God is doing in somebody else's life. And instead of staying in our lane, we compare ourselves to ourselves and the scripture says we're not wise for doing it. So when God brings us out of Bethsaida, when he brings us out of these environments and he brings us into isolation, the first thing he does is he says, you are unique. And I created you to be unique. And that's what he begins to develop. Remember a young man named David? Anybody remember David? I love the story of David. Because David was one of those people in the scriptures who embraced his uniqueness. Scripture says he was ruddy in his complexion. That means he was speckled, freckled, red face, red hair in the Middle East where everybody is olive-skinned and dark-haired. And on the day that Samuel shows up to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel, David is out tending the sheep. And all his brothers, all his brothers uh, are at home. And Samuel comes, and I'm going somewhere with this, I'm going to wrap it up. Samuel comes, check this out, Samuel comes, Samuel the prophet. Samuel comes and he shows up in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and he says, God sent me to your house, Jesse, because the next king of Israel is in your house under your roof. So Jesse's all excited. And, and he goes and bring the, brings the first one, Eliab, right? I think it's Eliab. And he, and he brings the first one. And Samuel's like, surely this is the Lord's anointed because he was tall and he was handsome and he was the firstborn. And the scripture says before Samuel could anoint Jesse's oldest son, the Lord stopped him, forbid him, and said, man looks at the outward appearance. Let me tell you why you got to embrace your uniqueness. <laughs> it's because God ain't looking at nothing about you that is external. Everything that God is looking at about you is what is on the inside of you. Don't trade what man does, looking at the external things for what God is doing right now, looking at the inside of you while you're out in the fields tending the sheep and everybody else is in the house. Isn't there something? Isn't there something? In fact, he brings all seven of his sons. And Samuel said, man, ain't none of these jokers the next king. Isn't there something? When the people closest to you who should know you best know you the least. 
Jesse has a king in his house, but all he sees is a shepherd boy. Are y'all listening to what I'm saying? And David learned at an early age to embrace his uniqueness. And you know where it happened? It happened in this divine incubator called isolation. God was saying, David, you're different. And that's all right. Most people in this room have not even discovered their uniqueness. They haven't even learned how to embrace their uniqueness. They don't even know what they like and what they don't like. And they're not even comfortable telling their partner, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. And it is in the place of isolation that God begins to reveal our uniqueness. But that's not the only thing about David that he reveals. He also reveals his character. After he anoints David and David, let me, let me, this is where most of us fail now. David knows that he's the next king of Israel. And guess what happens after Samuel leaves? He sends a huge entourage with chariots, with soldiers to pick up David from his house. No. David is anointed the next king of Israel, and guess what he goes back to doing? Tending the sheep. Let me tell you where most of us lose focus. We think that because God gave us a promise that it's immediate. And most of us don't allow God to develop character in us. Let me tell you what the character of God looks like. After God has given you the vision and says you're going to be something great, and then he sends you back to do menial tasks. Most of us can't even handle it. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why you are in the place where you are right now. Why he hasn't even brought the thing to pass. He's just looking on the inside to say with the knowledge you do have that I have this great dream and this plan for your life. Are you willing to do common things? Because that reveals your character. And what he's trying to do is to say, child, I got this big plan for you, but you got issues. You got humility and arrogance issues. And can I tell you what arrogance is? Newsflash. For those of you who think you're supposed to be a king or a queen and God has a great plan for you, but you're unwilling to go back to the fields, can I tell you what your arrogance is? Your arrogance is simply your insecurity playing dress up. Everybody can see through that. Everybody can see through that. And in time, it will be exposed. And that's why Saul, the scripture says, the king stood head and shoulders above everybody in the nation. He was the tallest person in Israel. And when they went to anoint him king, he was hiding in the dump. You know why? Because our insecurity can only play dress up for so long. And so he brings David and, 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 and he's developing character. David, you're the next king, but go back and serve your daddy. Go back and do what you always did. Not only that, David goes to Saul's house because David is a musician. And he goes to Saul's house. And every time David played, this is what the scripture says, the evil spirit that tormented Saul would leave him. But then something happened one day where the women started to sing about David and Saul lost his mind. Let me tell you something else God will do when he's developing character in you. Hmm? Bringing your life back into focus. He will put you in environments 
where people will throw spears at you to see if you're going to throw the spear back. And most people fail the test of character because God places them in hostile environments. And people throw spears at them, and guess what they do? They pick up the spear and throw it right back. And you know what God says? Let me delay the process for a little bit because this is not the temperament of a king. Are y'all listening to me? And we're wondering why we see men as trees. God is trying to bring our lives back into focus. Your problem is you're too quick to throw spears back. And God said, I can't put you on the throne with vengeance in your heart. 2020, you're going to be stuck right where you are until you learn to put your spear down after it's been thrown at you. Ah, you're quiet in this Presbyterian church this morning. I'm talking about a different future. Oh, oh, here's the test of character. Test of character. Was David anointed king? Yes. Did he go back to tending the sheep? Yes. Did he serve Saul? Yes. Part of that is God just bringing you into an environment where you can begin to appreciate where you're going to be living next. Without it being something you think you need to take by force. Uh-oh, uh-oh, yeah. Here's the other thing. Are y'all ready for this one? I promise you I'm, I'm going to let y'all go in a couple minutes, but here it is. Here it is. Not only did he send them back to tend the sheep, not only did he tend them to send them to play worship in Saul's house, here's the third thing he did. He told them, go serve your brothers. Hold up. These guys who don't even like me? Yeah. Listen to this. On the day that David confronted Goliath, why was he even there? Anybody remember? He was bringing them their lunchable. <laughs> Cheese and bread. And that one single act of character catapulted David out of obscurity into notoriety. Now what if David was too big for his britches? I am the next king of Israel. I ain't taking nobody no bread. I'm talking about a different 2020. I'm talking about the attitudes that hold us back. He's developing character. Let me tell you about the uniqueness. So he shows up and Saul says, hey man, put on my armor. And I love David. Because this is what David does, Harry. He puts on Saul's armor. And when you read the text, it says he walked around in it. Hmm? And then he took it off and said, Saul, King Saul, sir, thank you for the kind gesture. But this ain't going to work for me. He said there are people in life who mean well. And they think that by you putting on their armor, you will have their advantage in life. But if you don't understand that you are uniquely created by God, you will get stuck wearing Saul's armor for the rest of your life. 
Because most of us settle for the advantages that we've seen in others, and we don't embrace our uniqueness. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. God gave David a sling and a stone for a reason. And if all you've got to fall back on is a sling and a stone, embrace it. Because that's what makes you unique, and that's what God is going to anoint, and that's what he's going to bless, because God will never bless or anoint who you pretend to be. He will never bless or anoint you wearing somebody else's armor. Let me tell you the third thing. I wish I had time to spend time, but I'm going to go quick. Competence. Why are you where you are? God is it's just a test. He brings you out of Bethsaida into isolation to test your, if you recognize your calling and you embrace your uniqueness. I don't have to preach, talk, sound, smell like nobody else. I don't have to do it the way Saul did. In fact, I don't even need an arm. I don't need armor. All I need, all I need is what I've tested, and that's a sling and a stone. I'm uniquely me. I ain't got to be anybody else. And that's what God blesses. Character. Will I throw the spear back after it's been thrown at me? Will I take cheese and bread to my brothers who despise me? Will I humbly serve my dad who didn't even invite me to the party that was being thrown in my honor? That's what God is testing. Because before he puts you on the throne, he's got to make sure you got your calling right, your, your character right, your temperament don't nobody want no king throwing spears at people? Oh, here's the third one. Your competence. Anybody remember what David did when, when he took off the armor? He said, look, this guy ain't got no covenant with God. And y'all got him here taunting y'all and screaming at you. Look, David said, this is what I tested. He went, he went and got five smooth stones and brought them to the battle. Listen to me. We gotta, I got to say this. He brought five stones. But he only took one stone to take Goliath out. Let me tell you about your competence. The reason God develops us in isolation is because what you perfect in private will determine your proficiency in public. Let me tell you, your obscurity, listen to me, nobody's noticing you, nobody has seen you because of God's protection. Listen to me. Let me. Your obscurity is God's blessing and grace upon you because he will ultimately bring you into an environment that will require one shot, one kill. And the reason that he has kept you in obscurity is because he's allowing you to miss the shot in private. Y'all ain't listening to me. Y'all not listening to me? There are things that God is allowing you to do in the privacy of your relationship with him that nobody else gets to see. So that when Goliath shows up, all it takes is one shot. Because God's desire is not that you fail publicly. Y'all not listening to what I'm saying, are you? Let me tell you something. Your obscurity is because of God's mercy. And he's saying, pick up that stone and throw it at that, at that bear. Throw it at that lion. Because there's a giant coming that you can't afford to miss. It's going to require one shot that you have perfected in private that will change 
everything about your life. So he brings us to a place of isolation so that we can develop our competence and prepare us for our moment. Here's the last one. Why does he bring us out of Bethsaida into a place of isolation? Oh, man. It's to develop, here it is, to develop our conditioning. Where all my ball is at? You play basketball in high school? Two hands? That's it? Three? No, your pastor had game back in the day. Above the rim. Where true ballers dwell. I know I got my picture of me dunking somewhere on this picture. Y'all got that on the, if y'all can find that somewhere in the archives, I know it's there. Listen to me. Did you say come on? Did you say come on? No, it's in the archives somewhere. For reals. And, and, and no, let me tell you now. This was a photo shoot. And your pastor had on a black suit above the rim. It, it might be in there somewhere. If you can find it, put it on the screen so everybody knows I'm telling the truth. If not, go to our city church page this afternoon. You're going to see that picture there because I'll go post it. For reals. But if you play ball in high school or, or even in college, uh, what's the last drill you do at the end of practice? Antonio. Yeah, the last drill you do before you leave the gym. Huh? Suicide. You running them lines, them sprints. But what do you do after the sprints, after you're worn out and about to throw up? Huh? Man, I hear, I, I hear it coming from right over here from a non-baller. From the non-baller, he's getting all the answers right. After you run your sprints, if you had a good coach, what are they going to make the whole team do? Right where you are? Shoot free throws. Now, why did the coach make the team shoot free throws? I don't know about your coach, but you had to hit two in a row with no legs. Y'all see that? You had to sink two consecutive free throws with no legs. Why? Conditioning. That you would be able to still perform at a high level even after exhaustion and muscle failure set in. There's a guy who played for the Orlando Magic. What's his name? Nick Anderson. The Orlando Magic would have been a championship team when Penny Hardaway and Nick Anderson and Dennis Scott and Shaq played for them, except for Nick Anderson, who, when it mattered most, missed not two, but three free throws because he was fouled shooting a three-pointer. What's your conditioning like? Right now, in this season of obscurity, are you conditioned to lead and live for the 
long haul. Some of the stuff that God's putting you through right now, you're just like, why am I doing this? Wax on. Wax off. But all of it is a part of his process because of the plans that he already has for you. And what he's saying is, Ray, there's coming a day when you're going to have the rock. That's what true ballers call it. You're going to have the rock on the line. And will you have the conditioning to sink the shot even with tired legs? What's the second touch about? The second touch is about bringing our lives back into focus where we align our plans with the plan that he already has for us. And the way he brings our lives back into focus is to say, you're unique. Don't try to be like anybody else. I've got you where you are right now in isolation because I'm developing character in you. And yes, I've sent you to serve some hard people, but don't throw the spear back at them. I've got you doing things that may seem mundane and mediocre and insignificant, but I'm teaching you to wax on and wax off. And the third thing he says is your competence. I'm developing your skill set so that it won't take five stones. All it will take is one. And then four, I'm developing you to lead and to live for the long haul, your conditioning. Because he wants to bring what you saw, men as trees, into focus so that you will have uncommon clarity about why you are where you are and where he's taking you next. Let me pray for you. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more details about City Church and for other resources, visit us online at www.citychurchtv.com or contact us via email at info at citychurchtv.com. If you are encouraged or inspired by today's message, we ask that you prayerfully consider partnering with us financially, either in a one-time gift or as a monthly partner. No gift is too small. We have three convenient ways for you to give. Via our website at citychurchtv.com backslash give. Via text, text citychurchtv and the amount that you would like to give to 77977. By mail, mail your check or money order to City Church Global Ministries, 8105 Razor Boulevard, Box 90, Plano, Texas, 75024. Once again, thank you for downloading today's message. We look forward to connecting with you soon.